Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 5 of the GeoMob Podcast. I'm here today with my good friend, Steve Chilton. Steve and I could be two of the oldest members of the GeoMob community, but hopefully with age comes at least a little bit of wisdom. And hope Steve is going to share some of that wisdom with us this afternoon. So by training, Steve's a cartographer, having originally studied at Oxford Brookes University. He's a fellow of the Staff and Educational Development Association and a Middlesex University teaching fellow. Having recently retired from Middlesex University, his responsibilities there included curriculum development and how educational developments and methodologies be applied to the enhance the student learning experience. Gosh, Steve, that's, that's a long way off from cartography, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, Steve was also chair of the Society of Cartographers for many years and is working on a co-authored book on the first Ordnance Survey six-inch map series, and we'll hear a little bit more about that later in the talk from Steve. His big passion, apart from maps, is mountain walking, coaching, and running, and he's now turned that into a very successful second career with three books published to date and a fourth one out in July. Steve, that's quite a selection of interests. How on earth does a cartographer end up being an expert in e-learning? Did you ever use your cartography skills in your day job? Well, I had a long career at Middlesex University, so I was employed as a cartographer initially, making maps for teaching and research for the geography academics. And as the career moved on, so the job changed. I became involved in graphic design, uh, the virtual learning environment, and became eventually an academic developer, advising the academics on new developments, trying to keep them basically in touch with uh, technology as it changed, using things like the virtual learning environment, lip learning, video feedback, and such things as that. So it's a, a long career and a sort of progression through the stages, as I say. Wow. Um, I guess it sort of mirrors my, my, the big shifts that I had in my career. Mine was sort of the other way around because I started in building materials, manufacturing glass and mirrors and ended up running a digital mapping business. So anyway, let's, let's get to the meat of things. The bit that people really know you for, I think, is your relationship with OpenStreetMap. You've been involved with the project since the very early days. How did you get started? Well, even though my job changed, I was always involved in cartography in some way or other, whether it be for myself or uh, freelancing or whatever. Uh, and I was organizing a conference in 2004. Uh, I invited Steve Coast, the sort of originator of the OpenStreetMap project, to come and talk about it at that conference. Uh, I listened to him and I said, no, this is not going to go anywhere. Nothing <laughs> will happen. This is far too ambitious. And then a little while later, I started getting more interested and had a look at it and started in being involved. And since then, I've been editing, contributing, talking about it at conferences, and basically spreading the word because I am now a believer. Yeah, I think it gets us all like that, doesn't it? You start off the idea of a crowdsourced map and you think, nah, that can't work. And then gradually you realize that it can work. So what's your involvement now with, with OpenStreetMap, now that you're well, retired? 
Yeah, I'm retired. I live in North London and I kind of monitor developments in the borough that I live in, which is Enfield, working my way through address mapping in the borough. And I also try and do stuff when I go and visit other places. And really, it's more as an advocate, I think, that I'm uh, really involved now. So I'm asking people why are they not contributing and how they could contribute and benefit by adding stuff to the OSM database. That prompts a question from me, which is, it's not easy to contribute, to get started contributing to OpenStreetMap. What would you say to people who'd like to get started but haven't yet made the commitment and committed their first few buildings or streets or addresses? Really, it's a question of looking at somewhere you know and thinking, okay, is this complete? Are there things that I could add? And there's always things that are necessary to be added. It might be a new street, it might be a a misspelled place or name. And really getting to learn to use the simplest editor isn't too much of a task. And I just encourage people to have a look at somewhere that they know well and just add those things that they can on the fly and, and be part of the project. That's exactly how I got started. I started, I found a couple of alleyways round the corner to where we live and I added them to the map and then I started putting house numbers on buildings and then I got a little bit more adventurous and I added a few buildings and you're right you know once you get started in your local area it's easy to find stuff to do and um, and it's quite easy to get involved so there are lots of people who you know apart from individuals there are companies now who are very involved in OpenStreetMap, and they offer different cartographic representations based on OpenStreetMap. What do you think about all the different offers that are out there based on OpenStreetMap? I, I quite like the fact that it's, it's had penetration enough for companies to pick up on the project and move things on. So best of luck to them. To me, the big take is that it's a, a huge database. So seeing that data used gives the kick, whether it's in the original project map or in subsidiary things and other projects by other companies. You can see in the OpenStreetMap standard style, it gives me a kind of a buzz because I was heavily involved in the designing of that and it just gives me a thrill when I see it. Yeah, of course, lots of people don't realise how much work went in in those early days to creating the style of OpenStreetMap that is now sort of just generally accepted as the way that you style web maps. You know, I think even Google has learned from the styling of OpenStreetMap. And a lot of that work you were coding, weren't you? It was, and I had to learn quite quickly what this XML stuff was that Starship was in at the time and how things were portrayed in layers in the uh, Mapnik tool that was used at the time. So, yes, there was a lot to learn, but it was fascinating to be able to just do something, change it, reload it, and see it immediately effective in the displayed map. It's just occurred to me, Steve, whilst we're talking, that for many of the people who have seen OpenStreetMap or who even use OpenStreetMap as a base map layer in their applications, they won't fully understand the distinction between the rendering of OpenStreetMap and the database. Do you think you could, just for those those people explain what that difference is? Yeah, really, there was a, there's a, there's an argument amongst many people in the project that every single thing in the database 
should appear in the map. And I had to sort of explain the cartographic reasons why that wasn't possible. And so it's, it's a process of taking the data and deciding at what level of display it should be possible to see them. So obviously you can't display pubs, for instance, at all scales, and they have to come in a particular scale. So it's the, the selective use of that data to produce a meaningful map such that there's not clutter, not distortion, there's not an overlay of different items that confuse the eye, and making it a meaningful thing, basically using a set of rule-based decisions that are behind this style sheet that produces that effect. I, mean, I don't know if that explains it. Yeah, it does. And in, and in fact, there are some features that dedicated users will collect, which are unlikely to appear in most of the common renderings of OpenStreetMap. You know, when people were collecting every individual tree, for example, you're not normally going to have a rendering which shows all of the individual trees. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's important for all of us that we remember that it's a database, right? We we view it as a map. That's the way we view it. But the the key thing is that this is a database, not a not just a digital map. Another aspect to the database, it's also a database that's available to be used by people in whatever way they see fit. Mm. So if someone wants to map something like, I don't know, someone was mapping the location of grit bins one time, if they want to produce a grit bin map, they've got the data there. They can yeah. just do it in the way they wish. So in terms of the various cartographic products that people may have seen at some stage, what are your favourites? And is there one that you hate? <laughs> no, the one that I hate is no longer actually available, which was the original render from Osma Render, which was right. an attempt to put too much, basically, on any single map. That's my one, one I didn't like at all, and I'm pleased to say it's not there anymore. In terms of ones I like, I, I do like the way that uh, Andy Allen's Open Cycle Map takes the data and uses it to show the things that are more interesting to cyclists. So he's done a brilliant job in that and other aspects of, of display that he's developed as well. So that's just one individual person I'd like to, to, to mention and give credit to. Okay. But, but equally, some of the stuff that the companies have done, so the work that Mapbox are doing is really interesting that uh, they're contributing to the project but also producing interesting outputs as well. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that, I mean, Mapbox has built up into a very substantial company. You know, it's, a, it's one of the stellar successes of the, the whole era of modern digital geography. And yet they contributed so much back to OpenStreetMap, you know, like their style editing tools, which make it relative. I mean, it's still not simple, but it's a hell of a lot simpler than it was when you had to write everything in XML. So I think, you know, there's a, a call out to a quick clap for Mapbox. I agree with you. What about your favorite moments in your time working with OpenStreetMap? I'll give you a couple. One was quite early on. So at one stage, there was the kind of OSM versus Google game going on. And uh, there was a feeling that, uh, you know, we could do this stuff better than Google can in many ways. And there was an interesting situation arose at the annual conference, the State of the Map Conference in Limerick in 2008, uh, which was very well attended. And Ed Parsons, who was CTO, of Google at the time was uh, seen to be sitting on the floor in one of the aisles because he couldn't get a seat in the, uh, in the auditorium. But the fantastic thing was that he as an individual was there and was very keen to support what project work was going on in the OSM community. So that's one particular memory. And the other was 
I got the chance to go to Antigua to map some of the island as a result of a pledge bank draw that was made uh, in the OpenStreetMap community, which is a real kind of thrill for me to be able to do. And uh, that was brilliant to be able to put something back in to the project by mapping somewhere quite unusual where I may not have gone quite so easily in life. Wow, that is a lovely, lovely opportunity. I would have come with you if you'd invited me. <laughs> but the weird thing is I so misunderstood the, the culture that I was going into. And so on that island, there were not many street names and there were not many house names. And I just thought I could go and map out you know, for eight or nine hours a day uh, and produce a massive great amount of data. Of course, it was so damn hot that I couldn't go out in the middle of the day for so long. And uh, I was a little, <laughs> little underprepared, shall we say. Well, yeah. I guess that the guys who work for Map Action are constantly finding that they're going into environments that they're not prepared for and that they have to adapt to pretty quickly as well. Well, that's it. Adapt. Yeah. Adapt is the word, isn't it? So, yeah. Right back at the beginning, and I'm not quite sure that I go back to 2004, but certainly from sort of 2006, 2007, I've been involved with the OSM community, but not as closely as you have. And over the last few years, as I've got more involved with the OSGO software community, although I'm still a paid-up member of the OpenStreetMap Foundation, I'm not as close to it as I used to be. But it does seem to me that the dialogue on the mailing list can get pretty toxic pretty quickly. And that will discourage some, perhaps even many, from getting involved in the running of the foundation and all the other activities that need to go on, apart from just doing the mapping. Do you have any thoughts on why that's the case and how it might have changed? Yeah, I, I spent far too much time on the forum and on the mailing list and various things when I was involved in the style work. And it was ever the same. But it's because passionate, free-thinking people are doing their thing and they've got opinions. And it, it can get very intense. I've moved away from participating too much in that forum because of that thing. At one point, I was labelled by someone a benign style dictator for the <laughs> fact that I wouldn't include everything in the standard map that I was trying to work to, to make look better. But I took that as a sign that I was actually doing probably quite a good job and it was just a description that someone gave. But it was, there was a lot of rancour over various things as we went through, as you well know. And it's basically because it's an open community of volunteers who've got their own way of doing things. Yeah, and I think it's not helped by the fact that it's a global community and yet most of our dialogue is in English. So a lot of our community members are communicating in a second language, and I'm sure that's a problem. Well, it is. It's always been a Eurocentric project, and a lot of the decisions about naming things and various other things were made by people whose language is English. So that has not been an easy path for some people to accept, but uh, they were the people doing the stuff at the time. Yeah, and it's a complex thing. I gave a talk a while ago about boundary disputes and naming disputes and stuff like that. And the OpenStreetMap community has actually got an excellent and robust process for doing that that they've arrived at. But getting those processes and getting everybody to agree to those processes is time-consuming and on occasions quite challenging, I imagine. 
It is. I haven't been particularly involved in any of that, but I've seen the stuff about, you know, the Cyprus naming of places and, and other things like that. And it's good that some kind of resolution can be made as to how things pan out. And there should be a lot of credit to the people who work on things like the working groups and the and the, the parts of the, the project that deal with those things. I, I give them a lot of uh, credit and, and, and accept the fact that I'm not doing it, but thanks to them, we're getting a better product. Yeah. And I think for people from who are outside of the project, it's difficult for them to realize how much work is put into this project apart from adding geographical data. You know, there are a million plus people adding, adding map data, but many of them, of course, only occasionally. But there are a core of people who are running the servers, who are running the licensing working group, this group, that group. There's a lot of work goes on behind the scenes to keep this project running. And, you know, one should acknowledge the efforts of all of those people, I think, perhaps more than happens at the moment. Absolutely so. And uh, people probably don't realise that things like technological developments are done to a large extent by a very small number of people working very hard in their own time. And, and they should be, yeah, should receive a decent amount of credit for that, which maybe they don't get at the minute. Yeah. OSM is 15 years old now, I think. Maybe 16, coming up to 16 years. I, I'm not sure. But what do you think the status of the map will be in another 10 years' time when it gets to its 25th birthday? Well, well sadly, I think it, the data will still be patchy in parts of the, the globe. I mean, Steve Coase made a, a massive statement about full coverage by N years. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the number of years was, but it was an unrealistic expectation. So it's still skewed towards uh, developed countries, whereas the data in some of the other parts of the world are not so strong. So I think there'll still be an issue about full coverage, if you, if you think of it that way. One thing I'm hoping what will be evident shortly will be the availability of vector mapping options uh, from the OpenStreetMap data. I should be keeping a close eye on how that pans out. Well, you mean things like vector tiles? Yes, indeed, yeah. 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 I think it's interesting, you know, you're talking about coverage, and coverage is, was always a question that people ask when they're trying to assess, is OpenStreetMap good enough? When will it be good enough? Good enough for what? But back in 2018, we had Phosphagy in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, and it was held in conjunction with the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team's annual summit. And so they brought big number, you know, I mean, well over a hundred African mappers came to Phosphagy to attend the hot summit. And what you can see is that their efforts have actually made a big difference to improving the coverage in on the African continent. Well, that, that is fantastic. And you see that in, in other areas. And you also saw it in terms of some of the disasters that people have stepped in to try and help remote mapping for Haiti and places like that. So, yeah, there's some brilliant things that have had some brilliant effects on, on the availability of data for people to use for political and emergency purposes. Yeah, still looking at this 25th birthday of OpenStreetMap and which isn't that far in the future. What do you think the state of the community will be? I'm hoping that it's still community and not a business, that there will be freedom to be part of that community without being tied to any particular strands of, of external influence. So I think the strength of the project is the community 
long detail. I can't really, I've never been one at good at predicting things and uh, I'm not going to go very far in that direction. But uh, I do think that it will still be a community and it will be an important part of the way the project runs in whatever number of years time we're talking about. Do you think they'll still be squabbling? Yes, I do. <laughs> but the problem will be not that they're squabbling. The, the, the result will be still a better thing that yeah. is in place. And that even though I would still say that it's packet data, I still think the project is very viable to use for many purposes in, geo, in the geo world. Absolutely. And the very idea that there would be a crowdsourced map of the world that will have street-level detail in relatively small cities in less developed countries all over the world when there is no other map data available is quite remarkable. You know, we should recognize that this is an incredible achievement and one that everybody who's contributed, whether it is a single street or a single building, can feel a little bit of personal pride in. I know I do every time I look at OpenStreetMap. So Absolutely. Yeah. we're going to need to uh, start to draw this to a close, Steve, before, um, before we do, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your new writing career and is there a connection between your love of cartography and your love of running? Well, at a stretch there is. I've obviously been involved in cartography as a career and as, a, as outside interest. That leads to map reading, it leads to orienteering, which I used to take part in. Running, I used to run up and down the mountains as a fell runner, and so I've ended up writing about running up and down mountains. And so I've written three books on fell running, which is one of my passions, as you said earlier on. And I've just turned to that in my later life. I don't know why, it just happened. My wife says, not making enough money writing these books you should write some novel with a lot of sex and violence in. but my passion <laughs> is still running and i'm going to stick with it so that's kind of where i come from okay so when we do the show notes i'll put a link to your your web page or your amazon page wherever it is so that people who are interested in having a look at your running books can find them there and uh, maybe even buy a copy so you I mentioned right at the beginning that you were writing a book on the first Ordnance Survey six-inch map series. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that, but you might need to start by explaining what a six-inch map series is for some of our readers who aren't quite as old as you and me. <laughs> well, the six-inch map series was actually the first uh, large-scale series to cover the whole of the UK. Six-inch scale is 1 to 10,560. So it's very detailed. It shows a lot of uh, things that you wouldn't see on a standard Ordnance Survey 1 to 50,000 map that you might use for planning a walk or a journey. And it was developed in the mid-19th century. It took a long time to happen and was done in the old-fashioned way of triangulation and surveying in the field. But it includes some fascinating detail. It sort of mirrors the development of the rail system so you can see over the years how the, the, the landscape has changed due to technological and cultural change. And it's just a fascinating period that my colleague, uh, Professor Shepard, and I have been researching for many years, and uh, we feel that we've got a story to tell about that development of the map and why it's such an important resource 
that people should be able to use and refer to when they want large-scale information about the UK. From the 19th century? Well, from that era, yeah. yeah. And can one still... You, you can't buy those maps anymore, obviously. They've been updated. But can you still get digital scans of those early maps? Yeah, digital scans are available, and the maps themselves from that era are available in the National Libraries of Deposit, like the British Library, right. National Library of Scotland. They've actually got them all digitised and available online. So yeah, but it's part of it's now part of the full Ordnance Survey Master Map database that can be output at that scale right. from their current database, if you want. I'm going I'm looking forward to that book find, coming out eventually because um, for those of us who grew up with paper maps, this is the origin of all the paper maps that we used as Boy Scouts and as hikers and ramblers, isn't it? It is indeed. In fact, that the data that was collected for that series is then filtered down, generalised down to the other maps that people may be more familiar with. So it's the basis, in the same way as the OpenStreetMap database is the basis of that project. The 6 inch map, I would argue, is the basis for a lot that happens at the Ordnance Survey in their mapping projects. Right. So my closing question for you, Steve, which is going to be our standard closing question to all the people who've spoken at Geomob. What are your favourite Geomob moments, speakers, events that you can recall? Well, the, the, the whole thing about Geomob is so good anyway because it allows people a platform to talk about geo, geo development, shall we say. And uh, just even if it's work in progress hasn't got very far, it's a fantastic place to just talk about things. My personal moments are, have to be about myself, I'm afraid. But I so enjoyed sharing the stage with Ken Field at Geomob once to share some of our favourite bad maps. I think it was in September 2018 we enjoyed that. But also just the, the, the fact of winning the Splash Maps Prize for my talk on my work on the OpenStreetMap project uh, in June of last year. Uh, it was a pleasure to share the, the development that I've done and the mapping I've done and to be seen to be doing quite a reasonable job and therefore being recognised on that occasion. just gave me a lot of pleasure. Well, I was there on that day. In fact, I was there on both of the two days that you remember, and it certainly was a pleasure to listen to you and to vote for you for the Splash Match Prize. Oh, thank you. So, just as before we wrap up, if people want to get in touch with you to find about, out about your books, to find out about OpenStreetMap, to talk to you about running, how can they get in contact with you? Three simple ways, Twitter, and my Twitter handle is... Steve Pate, but it's spelt wrong. And when I registered, I actually spelt my own name wrong. So my Twitter handle is S T E E V numeral eight. Steve Pate. <laughs> now, um, so I've known you for quite a long time now, and I've always wondered why your Twitter handle was S T E V eight. And now I know it's just a spelling mistake. <laughs> It is. Um, and, e and I've also got, sorry. Go on, and email? An email is uh, steve.chilton, C-H-I-L-T-O-N, at blueyonder.co.uk, or I have a contact page on my blog, which is itsahill, or one word, itsahill.wordpress.com. Great. And we'll put those links in the show notes when we publish the recording. Steve, That's it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. It's been great fun. 
thank you very, very much for your time. And I'll look forward to catching up with you soon. Okay, thanks for having us on. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed doing it myself. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.